Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your host with the most, Tiny Tim. What's good, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm welcome, welcoming back our co-host, Joel Underwood. How you doing, Joel? How you doing, man? Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Um, we also have the current mayor of Bainbridge Island, Rasham Nassar. How are you? Hello. I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to learn more about Palestine. Um, you know, out of sight, out of mind, I think. I'm going to come up with a lot of dumb questions just because I don't have the context of what goes on in Israel and Palestine and with Hamas and all that stuff. So I don't want this to be a terrible educational process, something kind of simple. And I'd also like to know more about um, your family's involvement and and how you came to be the great mayor of Bainbridge Island. Um, first question I would like to start with, and uh, Joel, you can jump in anytime too. Um, state versus country, what is Palestine specifically? Is it a religion? Is it a piece of land? Is, is it a state? Is it a country? All that's a little confusing from the outside in. Yeah, well, <clears throat> definitely. Um, yeah, happy to happy to talk about this. And of course, for those listeners that aren't aware by now, um, I am Palestinian. I'm actually 
first-generation American-Palestinian. My parents are both immigrants from Palestine to America. Uh, So the history of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is really close to home for me. Um, And I grew up with a lot of kind of internal awareness of the conflict and its history, um, and really from both sides. Uh, So to answer your question, um, the Palestine is a state. It was officially recognized as the state of Palestine by the United Nations. But as United Nations, are we still part of those groups that recognize Palestine? (laughs) It's a good question. Uh, I'm going to also state my disclosure here. I'm not, I am (laughs) not a historian by any means. I'm not an expert on the history of the conflict. Um, You know, because it's so close to home and so personal Mm -hmm. and I have lived personal experiences um, myself and then also through my parents, I would say that my knowledge is less about the politics of what's happened and more about um, kind of the cultural and societal impacts on family. Um, Well, let's start there. Uh, (laughs) As a child with your parents being immigrants, what kind of culture differences did you encounter growing up and them as people in the workforce in America? Yeah. So um, I'll go back even further than my parents because there's one, there's one strange kind of caveat to my, my Palestinian heritage. um, That's a little tricky to explain. Um, And it's surprising to a lot of people. My maternal grandmother, her name is Helen, uh, is Pennsylvanian Dutch. My grandfather on my mother's side, um, he passed when I was six. He, of course, Palestinian, had come over to the United States to attend the University of Pennsylvania, where he was earning a graduate degree in political science. So my grandfather was very politically involved in advocating for Palestinian rights um, and was involved in uh, conversations and discussions at the U.N., He was also the mayor of the town that my parents are from, uh, which is a small town in the uh, West Bank called Der de Buen. Der de Buen? (laughs) Der de Buen. It's spelled D-E-I-R-D-I-B-W-A-N. I I call it a town, but it's actually still recognized as a village. And for all intents and purposes, if you were to go visit, it would very much seem like a village village. Um, rather than what kind of we associate with being a town, a a very developed town with core centers and things like that. Um, So they met. She was a, um, I forget what you call them, the switchboard operators, you know, back in the day. Yeah, you would have to call the operator who would then connect you to the line you were trying to reach. That's what she did. While he was attending school, they met. Don't ask me how. I'm sure she's told me this story a million times. But um, they fell in love. And a few years after he graduated and after the birth of my mother, actually, who was their third child, um, my mom was four at the time. She was born in Gettysburg. um, They took the boat back to Palestine where they remained Mm. while they raised their children. And they they ultimately ended ended up having four more. So my mom's from a very large family. My grandmother was the first American woman to ever live in Der de Buen and maybe to ever live in that kind of general region um, of Palestine. 
So she had um, kind of a reverse cultural experience where she learned Arabic. Um, she was kind of treated as an outsider and eventually learned the trust and respect of, of the Palestinians in the village. Um, so she's quite a remarkable lady and has incredible stories to tell. My father is from Der de Buen, so he was born and raised there. His mom was a goat herd. Uh, so just to give you an idea, an idea, like when I say village, I mean village. <coughs> she kept a very large herd of goats uh, in her home. Now her home is, uh, and it's still standing. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to visit it two years ago. We went back. I think it was the summer of 2018. Um, it's essentially carved from rock. And the way that villagers live was that the base, the ground floor, kind of ba- what they would consider the basement, um, was where the animals slept. And then above that is where the people slept. And the reason for doing that is one, to protect your animals at night from the risk of predators, but two, also to heat the house. Because um, heat so, rises. Because <laughs> heat rises. I don't know what it's like to sleep with a herd of 100 goats beneath you, but you know, this very simply, no electricity, no running water. I have memories of watching my grandmother go fetch water from the well. Uh, memories of her baking bread in the outdoor oven, um, cooking fires, cooking meals was always done outdoors. Um, interesting, very interesting, uh, and very rural kind of life. Yeah, simpler time. Um, I, so, I remember as a kid going to the well, and there always be snakes just above the water <laughs> line. You're like, ah, oh, what are you doing in here? <laughs> so, Rasham, you have, you probably have family that has very very vivid memories of of the al-nakba of of the point at which uh, for for people who are listening who who aren't as up on the history of the region around 1947 1948 the british as they so often did um decided that they knew best how the map should look and redrew the map to the current sort of ideas of where israel is they were changing a lot of Middle Eastern countries at the time. And the Al-Nakba, and I'm, I'm, pardon me if I'm not pronouncing that right, but that's basically the expulsion, the movement of, of the Palestinian people to the current boundary lines. And for some reason, and we can talk about why that is potentially, a lot of people in in the United States and all around the world, they know about the Holocaust and they know about lots of other uh, uh, racial and and national awful things like the killing fields in Cambodia, but the Al Nakba is something that does not get talked about a lot, and and doesn't really get taught in schools. And in fact, in in Israel, you're not even supposed to mention it and talk about it. Um, do any members of of your family, your parents, maybe aunts and uncles, have specific vivid memories of that time and and the expulsion? And and did, have they talked to you about them? Yes. Uh... Definitely. And they have, I mean, really early memories. Um, And I think you're referring to kind of what really marked the start of the wider Arab-Israeli conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, what ultimately led to about 20 years later, the Six-Day War. And my my family has very vivid memories of that because my father wasn't present there. And I could talk about the consequences of that to him. But my mother and my grandmother were. Um. Yeah, I mean, that just came about because, like, you know, I think it was like in the 18, late 1890s, um, the 1917 Balfour Declaration, you know, really began to create that tension in the region. So when these parties 
can't get along, um, tensions and conflicts just continued to rise. And when the attempts to solve the early conflicts, uh, you know, failed, um, that kind of all culminated into that 47, 49 Palestinian war. Um, and things have just sort of escalated on and off until then the, the, the extent of the geographic regions that are, um, the Palestinians are assigned to has diminished, you know, as in, as a result of their inability to come to uh, a peaceable resolution of the conflict. Um, but it's very complicated and it stretches back, you know, gosh, a hundred years, if not slightly more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said you had been there recently, just a couple of years ago. I had. Yeah. And I, yeah, I went, um, in 2018. Um, it was the first time I brought my family and my, my two small boys. Um, my mom hadn't been back for quite a number of years. Things were, it was really difficult to travel while, um, Trump, uh, was president. There were some restrictions and there were some closures of Palestinian um, embassies in the U S that just kind of made things difficult and untenable. So, um, we ended up being able to go. And, and I say that it's difficult because, um, and this goes back to the six day war. So my father was, was absent from Palestine during that time he was in the United States. So my dad, uh, has put himself through a lot of different, uh, schools and a lot of different colleges and has earned a variety of degrees, ended up with a pharmacology degree. So he worked, um, as a self-employed pharmacist, for all of my life, but because he was absent during that time, um, in which the uh, the occupiers, these Israelis, went around and did what they called a count. And I know it sounds silly, and I've I mean, I've talked to my mom about this. She has lived experience of this, um, just because it seems a little uh, unbelievable. But all the Palestinians that were present in the region got <clears throat> what's called a hawiya. And that means that they have Palestinian citizenship. So my mom, because she was there and has Palestinian citizenship, she can go back to Palestine and live if she wanted. My dad was absent. So he did not get the same rights to Palestinian citizenship as my mother did, as my mother did. So when my father travels, he travels on his American passport, which gives him um, a three month visa to visit Palestine. That was always a really sore spot for him and kind of led to the more kind of personal consequences um, and and repercussions for that immigrants face when they leave their home countries. They often feel kind of trapped between two worlds or they don't really belong in one, but they can't go back to the other. Um, And so when we travel um, and I travel, my sister as well, we are um, considered under our mother. It's a maternal uh, kind of process when it comes to visas and travel. So we're treated differently. For example, I was telling Tim a while ago that we rent a car, but because we're Palestinian um, and considered Palestinian, even though we have American visas and we're American citizens, um, we are we can rent cars that have green license plates. Green license plates means that you can't go to the places where the blue license plates can go, which are the Israeli license plates. So there's there's a lot of kind of I don't say like elements of apartheid, just separation and um, between the two. Um, Israeli and Palestinian. Uh, and then there's other, you know, there's other things when we're at the airport, I'm, I was separated from my husband and my kids. Um, and I had to undergo a different, um, more kind of intense search of my suitcase and my belongings. Um, and my sister actually came, entered into Palestine from Jordan. She was held up at the border for over 24 hours 
while they searched um, Facebook page and social media accounts and questioned her as to why she was visiting the uh, the state. Crazy. <clears throat> so I often think that the United States political system needs more than two parties. Um, is Israel a democracy like the United States? Um, Netanyahu situation seems like there's three parties and they're going to split the duties between two. What, what kind of democracy is going on in Israel? Well, you know, that's a really good question. Again, my disclaimer, I'm not an expert here. Right. I'm not. But I think that they, you know, they have executive authority in the state of Israel. Um, they've got a minister, uh, kind of like the, like the, like the British organized organizational structure mm-hmm. for their government where they have the minister and the prime minister. Um, you know, I'm not so terribly familiar about that, about the kind of the, the, the construct um, of their, of their government, um, nor am I familiar with Palestinians and how they govern. Mm-hmm. And there's, again, there's just been so much change and flux. I remember back, um, you know, in my early childhood, uh being able to recall that there was a very clear um, Palestinian leader, right. in Yasser Arafat. Mm -hmm. um, He was the, you know, the chairman of the, uh, of the, he was chairman of the Palestinian liberation organization. Um, He was the prime Palestinian um, kind of political leader. And it's, it's difficult to say that Palestine has been able to replace that qual that level of leadership um, in recent years, and I think that's just owed to the intense and long and ongoing conflict in the region. You know, all that aside, I am um, a firm believer in let's just all get along. Having been back there, there is certainly enough land for everyone to share. Um, and I think a lot of what we're seeing in kind of the younger generation is a move towards that. Yeah. When I was at UC Berkeley, I was involved in an organization um, that was a blend of um of, of Jewish people, um, Israeli nationals, and Palestinians. And our prime focus was just kind of to talk about the conflict um, and just to start to create a culture of collaboration and bridging the gaps between the two, um, between the two societies. And we're starting to see a lot of that in the younger voices as they emerge, which is really hopeful and inspiring. Mm-hmm. Well, let's actually, if I could piggyback on that and ask, when, you know, when Arafat and the PLO were, were even at their peak, even at, even at his height of power, the complaint from a lot of people who were trying to broker peace in the region is we're not quite sure who to talk to because we don't know who can make agreements and keep them. You know, Arafat would agree to this and then, uh, you know, he couldn't either make his people listen or didn't have the authority to. And now we've got sort of an interesting situation with Hamas where what's going on in the region is really is, I think, a lot of times mischaracterized as being Israel versus Palestine. When, in fact, what if you break it down, what we're really looking at is IDF versus Hamas. Do, Do you think the average Palestinian citizen, either here in the United States or back there in in the homeland, do they feel like Hamas speaks and acts for them? Or is is Hamas something that they go, I I don't know who these people are. They don't speak for me. They have their own agenda. How do you think they're looked at by, by the citizenry on the ground? 
I think is exactly what you just said. They don't relate to, to their platform um, or their actions or activities at all. Most people just want to live in peace. And most Palestinians would welcome an opportunity for, um, you know, collaborative settlement of, of this, of this issue of it, you know, you think about the choice between living in fear and, and living in this kind of holding on to or grasping of the past, wanting things to go back to the way they were. Uh, it's peace becomes the priority. Um, safety becomes the priority. Um, a lot of Palestinians have um, left the region, come to the United States to work and still kind of retain <clears throat> some connection to the homeland and <laughs> maybe own a home there and go back um, over the summer. Um, but they're not interested in the politics or the war. Most people aren't. Most mm-hmm. people just want to live peaceably. And I find that's true with, um, you know, for the other side as well. And I know that from personal experience because I've, you know, I've yet to encounter someone who said that they agreed with the, with the continuation of the conflict. Um, I think so much happens when you get, you know, when tensions escalate to the point at which they are, the, the people, the proponents behind them are so much smaller than the, than the population of the people that they think they're representing. Well and, said. Yeah. And it just becomes a matter of I, I'm right and you're wrong. No, I'm right and you're wrong. And then bombs are dropped and gunfire ensues. And mo- <laughs> who wants that? Uh, so, Nobody wants that. Um, this, this is the most elementary question I can ask, but I want to preface it. Like I look at it and I see Palestine land is spread around West Bank, Gaza, stuff like that. It's, it's not a defined border. It's not a defined country. It's a state. There's mm-hmm. Palestinian people all over the world in, in large increments. There seems to be multiple religions and land issues. What is the fight about in the most basic common sense? Is it about religion? Is it about land? Is it about old school thinking? Is it about a holy land? Is it about just pure ignorance? I don't know. What is it? Yes. <laughs> it's it's oh. everything you just said, man. It's it's all that stuff. Yeah. I think we should get them on the phone and ask. Yeah, exactly. Bring them, remind them that, you know, like, hey, do you even have a reason for why we're fighting anymore? Because Let's see. That's just- where I'm like. Who's in charge of Hamas? You know, is, is it Kanye West I need to call or, or who? You know, it's like, put a face on it for me. Give me a hotline. Give me a Twitter account, something that I can communicate with. Well, but yeah. here's, here's, I think, and this is where I think it relates, Tim, to, to what we're seeing in our own country in some yeah, ways. Very much or, so. what, or what the Irish are dealing with in Northern Ireland or, uh, uh, you know, let's look at, at India, Pakistan, whatever it is. We are seeing here, as we saw on January 6th, when the extremists of any conflict grab the steering wheel, it is really, really difficult, almost impossible for the more moderate, thoughtful elements to grab it back. Because, you know, no matter how extreme you are, you can count on the fact that there's somebody on the other side just as extreme as you. So perhaps I could ask our our mayor, who has you know, spent some time in politics and leadership and all that stuff. How do you get the narrative 
back when you are more moderate? How do you get it back from people who feel so passionately, so strongly, and so extremely? How do you get control of events again? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, I can honestly say that my experience on the city council has not really included or involved um, a situation or scenario that even very closely mirrors or mimics this extremist um, attitude that you just described. I think that, you know, passions can become inflamed. Tensions do inflame and escalate. And, you know, there's several ways to mediate in order to resolve that. And one is just to take a break, you know, to take a pause, but in order, you know, in order to do that, you need leadership. It all comes down to leadership. If you have a leader that can insert um, pauses, common sense that can listen and hear both sides of an argument um, and then mediate towards a, uh, you know, an amicable resolution that considers both parties wants and desires. I think that, that, that there's no matter so great that can't be resolved. The problem is when you don't have that in leadership, when your leaders are the extremists, mm. um, then you're right. How, how do the masses get control? The way that we do in America is through our democracy. People organize, right? I mean, we saw that with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, people rally, they get together. And by the sheer mass of volume and voice, people can move leaders to act on their behalf, or they can get them out of office and put someone else in their place. Um, I think in other parts of the world where we just see these ongoing conflicts and these ongoing wars, they don't have the ability to do that because their structure is so fundamentally different, mm -hmm. which is what makes our, our, our democracy, especially our local democracy, so great because the power really truly is in the hands of the people if they choose to exercise it. Do you think America is contributing to the continuation of this issue in any fashion? Like, are that we supplying guns? Are we taking one side over the other? Um, are those type of issues prevalent? You know, I don't know how prevalent they are. I do know that at certain points um, in the recent past decade, maybe two decades, that yeah, the um, America has supplied military equipment to Israel. Um, the Israeli-American relationship is pretty strong. I think, though, that the Americans have done well to include the Palestinians um, in those conversations. I don't know how well. And it varies, uh, you know, upon who's in office. I know that under the Trump administration, there were some setbacks and there was the instigation of yet another um, kind of tense battle over Jerusalem. So there's been some tightened restrictions around Palestinians' ability to visit Jerusalem and there's some threat to the yeah, Dome of the yeah. Rock, which is the which is like the, the you know the center, very, very uh, you know valuable and and in the terms of um, its meaning to Palestinians and to Muslim Palestinians in particular, um, probably the most iconic um, structure in Palestine. And there was some tension there under the Trump administration that there was a desire to um, give all or a portion of that to Israeli control. I don't know if that's still going on, but it was something that I actually learned while I was entering the Dome of the Rock to go visit it um, and had a conversation with a gentleman who uh, quizzed me on my knowledge of the Quran, um, which you have to you have to pass. My mom, you know, crash, 
crash quiz there. We, she, uh, she brought me up to speed so that I could, you know, have the right of right of entry and, and go and go visit that um, very historic and important um, mosque. Um, but I learned a little bit about the tension there too. And so that was something that was more recent. Um, but I know that Americans have played both sides. Uh, I mean, we see pictures of presidents, you know, Clinton shaking the hands of both leaders in the same room at the same time. Um, so I'm sure a lot of negotiations have happened behind closed doors that have involved both parties in terms of funding. I'm just not aware, um, right now how much, that America is providing support to Israel, if they're providing support to Palestine, I just don't know. Well, isn't this kind of where, and I'm going to use a very controversial word here, isn't isn't this where anti-Semitism comes into play? Because nobody wants to be called anti-Semitic. And and before Tim and I get hate emails and hate letters, let me be very, very clear. Anti-Semitism is real, it's out there, it's ugly, it's awful. But in the past, I think especially in America and especially in American government, as soon as you in any way questioned Israel or the government of Israel's actions or any of their stuff in terms of settlement or anything, the first word out of the hip was, well, you're anti-Semitic. You're being anti-Semitic. Do you think that maybe we're entering now a period where I won't say a majority, but a critical mass of people in America are starting to feel like, wait a minute, I can be, let's say, anti-Netanyahu, and it doesn't mean I'm anti-Semitic. I can be anti-settlement, and it doesn't mean I'm anti-Semitic. Is is that a, I don't know, some, something that maybe we're starting to see cracks in? I think so, but I would phrase it a little differently. Sure. I think, I think that we're, what we're seeing is, is a move away from that terminology, period, hmm. and a move towards just humanity. I think people are are not, you know, anti-Semitic or not, or pro-Palestinian or not. I think you're pro-human life and pro-human rights or not. Um, I think you're for equality, equity, and fairness or not. And I would say most people generally are. And those are those are the same kind of threads of um, of advocacy that we're seeing in yeah. in values that we're seeing in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, that I have direct, uh, you know, t- uh, interaction with, with through our race, race equity advisory committee on the island, when we um, think about and talk about Native American history as well, it becomes more a matter of, of, of having positive relationships with our fellow man, wanting the same for others that we want for ourselves, seeing the humanity in other people. And when you start to see that war, pain, suffering, it just, just doesn't belong. So I think that's kind of where, you know, the younger generation, especially, um, and we've seen this, you know, resurgence of, of love, the love movement, movement, the Beatles. And um, it wasn't about classifying groups and then advocating for their rights over someone else. It was about love. It was about equality. It was about the end of war. That's very well said, Rasham. Um to me, blows me away. There's all these religions fighting over this land. And I feel like religion is based in kindness to our neighbor, in believing in a God of, of your right, your choice, higher power, whatever. There should be no negativity around, hey, you have a different belief, or you have a different belief, or you're another religion. We're all human. 
So I really feel like you do, that human rights really needs to be the main religion for everybody. Treat people with kindness, fairness, and how you would like to be treated. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think that we often get, um, we get stuck on the, on the leader, the, the person, him or herself. Um, the identity, right? The name, um, the history. And what we forget in doing that is the values that they represented, the values mm-hmm. that they reflected. So it's not so much of a, a, a question of like following the leader, but seeking to mirror, imbue, embody the values that they led with, compassion, kindness, generosity, because you find that in every religion around the world. Yeah, and I think we need to seek out the things that we meet in the middle with more often and highlight those because it seems like extremists seems to, seems to be the norm now. You're anti-abortion or you're pro-life. It's the extremist viewpoint. Mm-hmm. It's not everything, the 99% that we agree upon the, down the middle. That's not highlighted, talked about, or engaged. It's always you against me, red against blue, mm-hmm. Palestine not really against anybody. I should say Israel versus Hamas. Well, and, and not even Israel. I would, and and by the way, we should say at, at this point, folks, probably that that our goal is that this is the first half of a two-part conversation. We hope to, in the coming weeks, um, have someone on the air with us here who who really hardcore represents the the Israeli point of view in this as well. But even that is a bit of a, a misnomer because, as we've said earlier in the conversation, it is not. The, if you pulled the average citizen off the street in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, or wherever, they would probably say that Netanyahu and Lehud and the IDF don't represent me either. That they're not interested mm-hmm. necessarily in, in settlement and some of the more extreme things that are going on here. Now, just in the couple of days, let's see, we're recording this as I look down at the corner of my screen here. to the. It's June 4th. Uh, it looks like Netanyahu is going to be gone. It looks like that uh, his his party has has been unable, or he has been unable to create a coalition to build a government, which is how their their parliamentary system works. And it looks like he is now, for the first time in decades, on his way out. Um, though a lot of people have gone broke underestimating Bibi Netanyahu. Um, do you think that? the exit of Netanyahu from the stage is going to change things and calm things down? Do you think this is going to make a difference or is it going to be same stuff, different name? You know, I mean, that's, that's a really good question. I think it's definitely going to bring change. What kind of change has yet to be seen, but when you, you know, you still have these extremist parties that are still fighting, um, you know, from a place of anger and a place of lack that are wanting things that are just unreasonable at this point in the history of this affair. Um, I hope that there's a leader in place soon, you know, for, for, for both, uh, for both sides sake that is going to lead from a place of compassion and kindness and not support or encourage this ongoing war. Um, change is definitely coming, though, in light of uh, of, yet, of Netanyahu's um, apparent impending departure. But we'll see. I mean, we've been, the Palestinians have been here before. The country has seen this before 
where there's there's a thread of hope. I think under the Clinton administration, um, there was a you know there was movement towards signing a peace treaty, and everyone thought this could be the end, but it wasn't. Um, so much is still outside of, of 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 any leader's control because the situation has just escalated to a point of almost no return. That said, it's really about movements of the people. And it's really about, you know, training these younger generations and they are, and they're actually training us um, on how to look at it through a lens of humanity. Both Jewish people, Israelis, Palestinians have a right to live there. And there are some people that you talk to, you ask, do you think they could ever live together in peace? And I asked these questions of Palestinians when I was on the street, um, you know, in my, in my, in my, uh, my very rough uh, Arabic um, and a lot of them said yes. And you asked the same question of um, Jewish Americans or, you know, I had a conversation with um, some Israeli soldiers as well. They, you know, at the, at the checkpoints um, and they're younger. They're they're, you know, uh, 18 to 20 something when they obligated to serve in the military. Uh, mostly super friendly, very respectful. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Um, incredibly polite. And I could just get the sense that they're living out this narrative that no one really agrees with. It's just been imposed upon them. So everyone is kind of acting the part. But I think as these younger generations begin to grow up and realize they have a choice and they have a say and that they can take control over their future and really force the leaders to make decisions that are consistent with their vision for that future, a future that does not involve war, does not involve gun violence, that maybe the fences can come down. You said something that really radiated with me. You said threat of hope. And that's flipping the entire paradigm around in my mind. It's like, aren't, aren't we seeking to, to give people something to live for, that hope, as opposed to constant conflict? It's just, it's such an old school way of thinking. Like, it's never love thy neighbor or coexist and stuff like that. And I think the youth is really where we need to attack this situation because they're more educated than ever. You know, the education my son gets compared to the education I got leaps and bounds. So now true whole history is being spoken to the kids and they can see where things went south and they don't want to have that continue. So I, re I really think that thread of hope comes through the youth and hopefully it's a, a glow, glowing beam of hope. Uh, yeah. It, you know, for, for example, there's some, you know, and I, and I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, counter to what maybe you might, glean just from watching the news and witnessing the conflict a lot of there's a lot of palestinians in america yeah um and a lot of palestinians are educated at american institutions some of them go back and live in palestine and they take those skills with them to help um you know to help lift the palestinians and to lift the spirits and to and to carry that thread of hope um i learned about when i was there um, talking back about the village and coming out of this very rural life uh, where there are still houses in existence that accommodate animals on the ground floor. Um, <clears throat> lawyers, Palestinian lawyers trained in the U.S. and practicing in the U.S. have uh, provided free services to Palestinians who own land to actually register that land 
And that might sound silly because we're so familiar with title and deed and our purchase and sale of property is so documented and public records. And, um, you know, we have contract law, which protects interests on both sides. And um, Palestinians haven't had that. They don't have that infrastructure. Um, that's kind of societal legal infrastructure. They're just now starting to develop it, um, but they're developing it. And that's providing them a sense of, um, of ownership of the lands that they have um, and getting them a foot in the door in terms of negotiating from, um, from a more neutral uh, standpoint. So that's something that I, I witnessed that's really kind of becoming um, uh, apparent in, in its effect to provide that sense of hope. Um, you can actually go into the mayor's office now in the Palestinian village and ask for um, aerial photography of a site and they have it marked down. And this is like when my dad saw that, you know, just in 2018, he couldn't believe it. His jaw dropped to the floor because what had, what, you know, just decades prior, it was a book with pencil handwriting. And it said, this land belongs to this person. <laughs> that was it. It wasn't, there was no computer, you know, there's no parcel map drawn. It was just kind of every, it was kind of an honor system thing. Like everyone knew that was your piece of land and everyone knew, you know, people knew not to touch it um, kind of a thing. But it's it's definitely helped lifting the Palestinians, I think, into the modern era and giving them that sense of confidence that um, that I think they've struggled to retain. That seems like a very important step. Um, sorry if I cut you off there, Joel, but no, no, I don't understand the land taking there seems to be some law in the books where you, if you were to leave and come back, I, I don't know the gist of it, but it seems like Palestinian people are being displaced from some of the land that they believe to know. Do either of you know what I'm talking about? Can we either one of you pontificate on it? <laughs> well, t first, yes. I mean, yes. The answer to your question is yes. and And that sort of brings me back around to what what you were talking about with the idea of the thread of hope don't don't kid yourself there are some people for whom hope and peace is a threat there there any any long going look around the globe any conflict that's been going on this long that is still going on it wouldn't be going on if there wasn't a and sometimes it's a very small group but if there weren't people who had something to gain by keeping it going there are people whose power you know, whether it's the hood or, or whoever, or, or maybe it's the orange order in England, maybe, whatever. Maybe it's America selling guns. To and, and exactly. It can be a financial gain. It can be a political power gain. It can be an aristocracy and caste system gain. It, it can be whatever, but there's always going to be people who, when a conflict has been going on this long, it is going on that long in part because there are some people who have a lot to gain by keeping the status quo going. And, and I'm, I'm glad that Risham has had terrific um, uh, interactions with the IDF. I've had very different interactions in that I've had students uh, who have left me and gone over there to to be in the IDF to as as citizens and and spend their their couple years doing it, and who left me as, in my opinion, beautiful, wonderful, three dimensional kids who have come back to visit me. This has happened on a couple separate occasions and everything was going great until I asked the wrong questions about what was going on over there and heard incredible racist vitriol and language about Muslims and, and Arab citizens and Palestinians that I will not offend people by repeating here. And I kind of go, what, 
what happened? Oh my God, you are not who you were when you left me. And the indoctrination there is, is there and it's real and it's strong. And, and I have to say, I've never worked a checkpoint and had people coming by me that I'm wondering, does this person have a bomb or a gun and wants to kill me? I can't put myself in those shoes, but it's real. And there are people and there are forces in any conflict who have something to gain by keeping it going. So I guess my, my question to Risham would be, is part of sort of defusing this bomb, and it sounds like maybe at Berkeley you did some, some studies into this and some look into this, is the first step deconstructing it and looking at who's got something to gain by keeping it going and how is that process working? Well, yes. And I mean, absolutely. There's always private interests involved, um, especially when, when you're talking about war. I mean, all war is for a reason, right? And there's usually someone who's um, a very small group of people or a, or a corporation or some industry that stands to benefit from it. Um, and that's pretty well known. I mean, I, I, I think I was, became aware of that probably during my time at UC Berkeley um, when I became, you know, kind of awakened to the realities of our world and the business of war and how much profit is made, um, you know, essentially from the death and death and destruction. Um, and so, the rebuild. And the rebuild. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a business for all intents and purposes. I don't like calling it that, but yeah, you definitely have private interests involved. Um, and that's true of everywhere. That's true of everything. And, and we're seeing that with the Black Lives Matter movement, too. Um, this push for equity and this this kind of uh, advocacy and drive to have more people of color in positions of power. And the opposition that folks are facing to that is pretty um, shocking and revelatory of the, of the problems and the inherent structure of our society where historically marginalized populations continue to be left out of those rooms and those discussions. And there's um, a reason for that. And it really revolves around power because when you're in the position to make the decisions, there's a lot of power there. Mm -hmm. um, and power is not something that people want to give up. Mm. I don't want it at all. <laughs> what do you mean you don't want it at all? What is that? I, I've been around some people that are very powerful and it's, it's changed their whole personality and their um value set you know it's always chase 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 as opposed to just be calm love your family love your neighbor do your thing you don't have to max it out to the extreme all the time that's the type of power i you know i'd love to have the power to inspire but not the power to rule over someone does that make sense yeah. Yeah. No, I really, I really like that. I think that when you have, when you have power and wield it in the wrong way, that your, you know, your drive or your motivation becomes around protecting and preserving that power, which means that, you know, you're now operating from a basis of, of excluding um, other people, that power is coming from somewhere. And it's usually coming at the expense of those that don't have, um, equal rights or opportunities mm -hmm. that, that you've had, which has, you know, landed that person in that position of power. And then it just becomes a, you know, a game of, of protecting it. And sometimes that involves war. <laughs> well, and there's a, there's a political science school of thought that says power begets fear because the idea is you cannot have power without then creeping in behind it, the fear that you're going to lose that. And you are willing to do sometimes some very extreme. I mean, you guys live on Bainbridge Island, right? 
all around you is uh, you've, you've got this this beautiful cultural center of of what happened in World War II when you know the the white power structure in America was afraid and and we took Americans we took American citizens and we locked them up in in camps down at the Puyallup State Fair and we we pulled American citizens from their homes basically out of fear and and yet we were at the time arguably the most powerful country in the world so the the question really becomes can you have power and at the same time have the calmness to not worry about whether or not you're going to lose that power or not i mean they say that uh, a united states congressman from the day they get elected has to raise 10,000 bucks a week to run for re-election the next time i mean as long as that's the case that's why because most of what you're doing is the fear that you're not going to keep having that power the fear that you're not going to keep having that job it's crazy <laughs> Yeah, I think the the if you if you look at like who who are um like our most notable kind of global leaders have been. And I'm thinking Martin Luther King Jr., I'm thinking Gandhi, I'm, I'm talking about um Nelson Mandela, people that have led from a place of compassion and love where they had a lot of power. They had power of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just wielded it well because it wasn't coming from a place of fear. It wasn't coming from a place of anger, or hostility. Um, it was coming from a place of love and having that power to them and distributing it meant sharing it. And by virtue of doing that, by breaking down those barriers and, and, and allocating that power out into the world, into the community, um, actually reciprocally empowered them even more. They grew even greater in, in influence um, and their ability to cause change. Um, so we often don't think of it that way because it's really hard to trust. It's really hard to follow a path of heart um, when we are also struggling and there is so much suffering and there is a lot of pain in our world. And, um, you know, especially with COVID and the job insecurity that so many Americans have faced, um, food scarcity. I mean, these issues are really real and it's transitional housing. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a really great challenge, but I think for the most part, um, a lot of people do it really well. And I especially see that on Bainbridge Island. I mean, we have, um, you know, these free exchange of things on, on the social media sites, people are always willing to come and lend a hand and help that really deep sense of community, which is primarily built upon a foundation of trust the alternative leads to very different and very bad things. Well, yep. you mentioned three people there. And the sad thing is the three people that you just mentioned are no longer with us. Who is, uh, who's out there? Who's doing it right? Who, who do you look to in terms of leadership right now as kind of your, your role models and people who are, you think are doing things the right way on a large scale? <laughs> okay. I'll tell you an embarrassing fact, but <laughs> when I, um, for example, when I'm on the city council and I, and I have to confront a really difficult debate or I'm thinking about an issue that's contentious, um, I go on YouTube and I watch Obama. That's <laughs> totally cool. Yeah. That's what I do because he speaks oh, he... from that place of heart. He reaches people um, and he brings people together. And I aspire to be that in leadership. I haven't always done it perfectly, um, but when my approach to my job, my approach um, kind of to career, the, to the things that I want to do is 
is inspired by that quality of leadership, by those values in leadership, which are good values, which take into consideration all of humanity, not just some aspect of it, um, leading from that place of heart. So now you know that about me. <laughs> that's No, that's totally cool. Are there... Um... Are there women? Is there who, who Michelle from that side? I mean, Michelle. Uh, some people might because it's true. Yeah. yeah, no, I love Michelle, but I mean, hey, like, she's on my Mount Rushmore guest that I like the most. Is is there an AOC? Is there a is there an Elizabeth Warren? Is there somebody who you look at as as a woman and go that she's doing it right? She's speaking for me. I I got one answer if I can jump in because it's fresh yeah. in my mind. Is Amanda Gorman. Oh, she was great. The poet, the yeah. young poet. Um, she just, she radiates teachable m- moments for youth, I think. Uh, yeah. Her words are strong. Her delivery is powerful. But what she says is even even better. And if you can glean the, the teachable moments from her public speaking, I think, I think she can move mountains. Yeah. And, um yeah well again my my (laughs) my easy answer was michelle but i was too easy but i you know i draw from a lot of of women leaders and especially women um female politicians um especially aoc elizabeth warren um i watch them talk a lot and i listen to their strengths um and i hear their angles and how they approach um personal you know, discussions. I know AOC has been on the floor and talked about instances where she's felt discriminated against or targeted um, has and has really represented herself well. And I think that a lot of women find support in watching her encounter the challenges of being a young female politician um, in a predominantly, you know, male dominated, um, you know, white dominated world. Um, Elizabeth Warren is um, harsh she has that ferocity that I think women need sometimes. We kind of all need that sometimes, especially when what you're fighting for is so good that you need a little bit of an, an element of, of strength. You need to exert that point because you believe in it so strongly and you know that the majority of people believe in it so strongly too. Um, so I borrow from I borrow from a lot um, of women and leaders. Um, I've, and I have people in my personal life. I have friends that have modeled um uh, you know, good qualities and leadership qualities, um, both in my personal life and, and, and then in my professional life as well. Um, uh, employers, one, uh, Laura Camp, who was, she gave me my first job out of uh, restaurant work, which was a really exciting and long overdue transition for me. I think I was 24, 25. And I started, um, you know, breaking that, getting out of that restaurant world and into something different is something that every, most cocktail waitresses and bartenders and servers that I I worked with wanted to do. And they ended up being career waiters or waitresses. We always walk around, you know, moaning and griping about our jobs. And um, and I and I found a, a, a mentor in a woman whom I met through a yoga teacher training who offered me a job managing her fitness studio because she saw something in me that I didn't even necessarily see in myself. So she helped develop some managerial skills in me and business skills and modeled um, kind of a compassionate approach to business, which was really interesting. So pulling a lot of the, a lot of things we talked about, kindness, compassion um, into all relationships, including business ones. 
Um, so she's a really important person in my life and I still communicate with her. And if I have a tough question or I'm not quite sure how, how to tone a specific email, that's a hard email. Um, you know, I rely on the people in my life that have historically served as mentors, as guides, um, to help advise me on that. So now we tie it all together. Watch how we do this. This is, this is going to be, this is going to be a high degree of difficulty dive, but I think we can do it. If you look and this is my personal soapbox. If you look at all these intractable things we're talking about around the world, things like Israel-Palestine, things like uh, uh, India-Palestine, and or excuse me, India-Pakistan, and what's going on in Ireland and all that, you see largely in control men. Mm-hmm. Do you think if in, in the, the Israeli-Palestinian situation, if we had more women at higher levels of government on both sides. And I'm not saying women can't be radicalized. Women have men, women will be. Do you think we would be looking at a better, more hopeful situation? Yes. Because I I do. (laughs) I I think the more women, I think history is on my side when I say the more women you have in charge at higher levels of government, the more peaceful things are. Yeah. Tim, did you want to jump in there? Yeah. I, I just... I want to say yes. I <laughs> respect my wife. I respect my mother. Um, there's a certain nurture t- to discipline ratio that men don't always give. So I, I think there's a there's a good chance it's it's better for the future. I, I don't. I wouldn't say it's not. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I think that's a that des- it's deserving of a whole other podcast. I'm happy. I'm happy to come back and have that conversation. We can talk about that. Because I've, I'm, you know, I'm a mom of two young boys, um, and I've, uh, I've read a lot of parenting books on boys and um, learn about their, you know, how they, how they learn differently and yeah, um, different brains. The brains are different, you know, and 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 there's just there's there's some fundamental kind of biological differences between male and female absolutely um, that are are you know are good to talk about especially when we talk about who's better to be in power women or men i think the problem is not the gender of the person in charge it's the quality <laughs> of it it's the quality and i think that what we often see is that people who are attracted to positions of power want it for themselves so what we have to do, female or male or, you know, um, gender neutral, I'm, it, it really doesn't necessarily matter the person, but the intent behind the person, why they're seeking that position of power. Um, what is, what platform are they running on? Question them, find out why is it that they want to serve? Why is it that they want to wield control? If their reasons are genuine, if they are truly interested in performing service in the interest of the community and not there for selfish personal reasons, then I think gender doesn't really matter because their intent is pure. Their heart is in the right place. Um, that's really difficult to find because kind people, good people don't want the messy, you know, kind of hurtful and very difficult um life or consequences that come from being in a position of power, it's really hard to be in a, in a public, to be in the view of the public, to be in a public role. Um, It can get really personal. It can get really difficult. There's its own unique challenges, both political and then, you know, professional consequences as well. Um, Potential personal consequences, impacts on family. Um, and you can ask any council member, it's a really hard position to be in. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine that, that 
difficulty only rises the higher up in office you go. Um, and so finding people that are, that are, that are good, that have good intentions, that are pure of heart, that are really wanting to serve, to make the world a better place, that are ready to make, you know, good on their promise to bring more equity, more fairness, more respect, more professionalism into our world, to give a voice to the people, to represent the values of the people, um, can be hard to do. But we're seeing that now. The trend that I'm seeing with AOC, we have Tara Simmons um, over here in the 23rd Legislative District, is that people are stepping up because there's so much at stake. And we're not just talking about war. We're not just talking about, um, you know, social, uh, you know, disputes between groups of people about discrimination, ongoing discrimination, racial inequities. We have climate change to contend with. Uh, we have environmental toxicity that is becoming very real and very alive. We have concerns about water and water resources. These are all coming. These are all realities. And it's so important um, to start to fight for those things, to have good people in place, to make policies that are going to help curb some of the impacts of, of, of those realities that are they're upon us. Um, but I think people are more and more inspired to say, it's worth it. It's worth it for me to do this. It's worth the risk. It's worth the harm. It's worth the challenge. I'm ready to step up and do this. And then the, the more that that happens, the more people will follow behind them. So every time you have one of those people come into a position of power, it shows everybody else in the community, hey, I can do that too. If she did it, I can do that too. And that's been one of probably, I'll try not to cry when I say this. <laughs> one of the most special parts of being on the city council is has been having conversations with our youth, um, with high school students, with people in their early 20s that are kind of figuring things out. And when I tell them my personal story, when I tell them my background and the life that I came from and the personal challenge and adversities that I faced and how I never gave up and I kept moving forward. Yeah, there's suffering. Yeah, there's pain. But you find a goal, you pick a goal and you follow it no matter what happens along the way. You never give up on yourself and you grow because of it. Look at it like a good thing. Take the lessons from it and use them and apply them and continue to apply yourself. And inspiring those voices to the table um, and having them um, find their way into City Hall, um, finding their way up to that mic to comment on a piece of legislation that's before the council, I think has been one of the most rewarding experiences of, of service for me. That's very well said. Rasham Nassar, Mayor of Bainbridge Island, thank you so much for your time today. It was Thanks a great a discussion. Thank you so much for having me. This yeah, was really Let's do it again. You bet. For sure. Joel Underwood, thank you for your time. Oh, it was great to be here, man. Um, I'm, I'm looking for episode two from the from your podcast, so let's let's get on the road, buddy. Get there. And then um, I'd like to thank the nice people at uh, Blue Canary Auto, the support I get from Helpline House, all the Patreon, Podcastville that supports the monthly show and who's last mud water go drink that co coffee alternative get those mushrooms in your life you've been listening to the bystander thank you be kind say goodbye 
your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.